Welcome to episode 7 of the Metal Hammer podcast. I'm Mel and I'm here with Jonathan and Elle. First time we've had this particular combo, guys. It yes. is. How are we doing? What's I'm, going on? I'm doing very well. Me too. Quick shout out to Mr. Luke Morton, who is away traveling the world for the next three weeks on his lovely little holidays. Uh, we'll see him back soon. What have we been doing? Nothing as glamorous as that, have we? Uh, oh, you went to Parkway Drive at the Underworld the other day. That was pretty... Friday night. Hot. Hot, non- yes. Non-glamorous and amazing. Obviously, they're playing massive venues now, like Brixton, and doing festivals. And they didn't bring the pyro or the spinning wheel drum kit. They probably would have killed people. Probably would have killed that. people. <laughs> but it was basically like a headline set in a 500-cap venue. So it was really sweaty. Loads of people stage diving. What set list did they do? Because I heard it was going to be quite Horizons heavy. It was, yeah. It was really Horizons heavy. And they shipped in a couple of the new ones as well. The Void sounded amazing. Just decimating. And they obviously ended with Boss and Feeder and that was insane as well. And it was just, yeah, it was one of those gigs where everyone was just climbing all over each other and getting very excited um, amazing Winston was kind of taking his shirt off going oh I can't believe it it's so crazy up here you know and uh, bottles of water were being handed out to people and it was just literally one of those shows that everyone's going to remember for a long long time oh, <laughs> sorry I thought you were going to add a, a distinct like, passage of time then just for a remember for Ebbs but yeah, the, the for new, seven years the yeah. New, it was very horizons <laughs> heavy but the new material just sounded super cool and everyone was singing already it's so telling that they're like ending sets with that now even when it's kind of a you know quote unquote nostalgia set or whatever they're really kind of going straight back to the higher stuff yeah interesting almost like closing a chapter of that band's career in a sense because it kind of feels like there's really like a pre-Ire and post-Ire world for them and I kind of think the two singles they've released off the next album is it kind of goes to show that Really, I really does. I would really agree with that. I think there's definitely a pre and a post world, and this post world they're moving into is going to be really fascinating. Fuck yes, Reverence of course is coming in May. I think that's right, isn't it, L? Yes. Yes, L knows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so I can't wait to be hearing that. We'll be uh, going very big on that in the magazine, of course, uh, as well as a special interview with the guys coming up in a future issue of Metal Hammer. So uh, watch out for that. Jonathan, what have you been up to? Um, something very different. Oh, sound like <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, very different. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, the last gig I went to was Anna von House Wolf at the day. Oh, yeah. How and was that? It was one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed. The reverence in the room, in the room before she came, came... Maybe there's reverence in the room as well, too. Who knows? <laughs> but the reverence in the room before she turned up. Like, I've never seen a room just go silent. Like, absolutely... Every single so song, wasn't it? Upstairs of the dome, yeah. yeah. Uh, just before she came on, and so she has this voice that's like so incredibly powerful. You, like it must feels like it kind of comes from another dimension, but it's also otherworldly. It's kind of like a Chelsea Wolf kind of vibe. That kind of it is. I mean, end of yeah, you can, you can. It's only that kind of sense of like, like moving into sort of a realm that's kind of like not fully daytime awake, like more of a kind of like semi. A conscious realm or like in some kind of more nocturnal realm you can hear references to Judy Cruz who was on Twin Peaks and did the album oh. did this amazing album with um, Angelo Badalamenti called um, and called Into the Night and so it's just this kind of very mesmerising but extremely powerful channeling something other in the room and everyone was just like absolutely just like stunned and um last song she came and she kind of walked into the audience and it was a really kind of truly intimate moment amazing and yeah just like 
this voice just it's 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 something else something else it's such an incredible voice but it's also so loud and so powerful and so unique awesome and if you want to read more about Anna von Hauswolf you can of course do yeah. so in the current issue of Subterranea which if for some insane reason you weren't aware is the free extreme and underground magazine that comes only with each issue of Metal Hammer uh, of course we've been banging on about that issue all month because it fucking slams by the way features a world exclusive interview with Rob Halford and Tony Iommi along with the aforementioned uh, issue of Subterranea plus Conjurer Ailstorm Vile Creature Dave Mustaine Love Bites Primordial Turnstile Andrew WK uh, as always we give you the ultimate spectrum of all things heavy so get out there and pick it up right now just on the off chance um, we heard from some of our suppliers that the fuckery of the snowstorm that hit the UK earlier this month kind of hit a couple of outlets so if you weren't able to go out and pick Hammer up for, for that reason uh, they're all fully stocked now so get out there right now pick it up we appreciate your support as always uh, so that's what you guys have been up to. I was I went to see Bill Bailey in Watford, which is a slightly different vibe. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. He was wicked. Yes, Metal Hammer, Golden Gods, Illuminati. We should add Bill Bailey. Um, so that was good fun. Is he still doing references to metal in the show? He did. Yeah, actually, he did. Um, he played um, uh, Iron Man on cowbells. That's <laughs> so good. This is pretty cool. I have long said there are not enough cowbells in metal. Absolutely. Yeah, it was really, really good. Uh, beyond that, there's been a lot going on this week. What the fuck's been happening? In, I'm swearing a lot this week. Apologies to those that are offended by swearing. You're probably listening to the wrong podcast. Who cares? Um, what's been going on in the world of metal this week, El? Well, Marilyn Manson has teased a video for Tattooed in Reverse featuring Courtney Love as a I nurse. I saw this. Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson, fans of a certain vintage, definitely very excited by that, I imagine, as I am. Yeah, it looks super cool. I mean, I think they've been feuding on and off for 20 years or so now. Sounds about right. A long time. We were talking the other day, actually, before this came out, about the Beautiful Monsters tour in yes, 99, when we they were. were both on there and then it yeah, kind of Manson ended early, didn't it, because they fell out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it all went to shit, and uh, there's loads of contra- controversy about it. And uh, yeah, I kind of I don't know how often Manson and Courtney have really crossed paths since then, but um, it's interesting to see them back together again, and you know, in a video together. It's very speaks to a very kind of uh, exciting and historic era in metal and heavy music history. I think. I think her being a nurse and Manson being in a wheelchair as well is just sort of classic. Manson alternative territory you know it's going to be the video is going to be something cool well I wonder like how self-aware like it's going to be like how much they're going to like play off you know being themselves Mm. yeah absolutely I mean they're both very like that they know Mm. how to kind of play off their stereotypes and play off what people think of them has Manson sorted his leg out yet because when I saw him in that wheelchair I was like you still fucked what's going on I don't know you never know do you if it's for theatrical purposes or for a genuine medical reason I do think it was kind of cool at the show though how there's so much medical paraphernalia there because I did think again if you're a fan of him there's probably a certain crossover there with medical fetish so probably going to like that sounds about right and uh, the tattoo in reverse you, I mean um, we, we kind of started doing this podcast again after, well after the uh, the album came out of course but um, I think we were pretty in on Heaven Upside Down weren't we? yeah Generally. I loved it you did love it didn't yeah. you? yeah I think I was the one who most loved it Definitely. So I think you guys maybe had more measured opinions on it, but I really liked it. I liked it, but I kind of feel like the reaction to it in general made me realise I didn't like it quite as much as everyone else seemed to. Because it was, it was a, you know, it did, it did come across like it went down like a another, not another return to form, but a continuation of the form that the Pale Emperor had him on. But yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't 
blown away. Yeah, I, I think we have different expectations for him these days. Yes, um, definitely. I, I think, you know, we're just kind of relieved that the album's <laughs> all right. I mean, I still think Hollywood is a masterpiece. I think it's, yeah. And, My um, favourite Manson album. And, you know, but it, was, <clears> it, was all, it wasn't just about Man- Manson, it was, it was very much part of the era that it came out of it. You know, it had something to say about the era. Mm-hmm. And you don't expect that from Manson albums. You just expect Manson albums to be about how's he doing these days. And, you know, rather than anything bigger than himself... Mm. and also himself it seems to have like shrunk a little bit so it's good for the expectations you have but um, I think expectations for Manson albums have kind of shrunk and we were, we were kind of relieved when an album's pretty good yeah, yeah I think that's fair um, yeah interesting to see if uh, maybe we'll see Manson and Courtney back on tour together who knows although no he's going on tour with Rob Zombie again isn't he in the yeah, States yeah Twins of Evil okay, another one where I thought they weren't friends anymore because they had a fallout on tour but they had a fallout on that tour didn't they yeah. specifically and... Manson rebuilding some bridges it yeah. seems well you know I went to see the um, when they played the last time at the uh, O2 oh uh, yeah um, I was at that gig um, yeah that was one mm-hmm. yeah. the thing is there was such a difference between like how they approached their gigs like the level of professionalism and you know the Manson gig was just typical Manson mess uh, you know, oh, it hurts me so much to hear the words typical Marilyn Manson mess <laughs> that's horrible yeah but I saw him you know, like, historically one of the single greatest live acts of all I time I know but you know but, you know, I saw him at Wacken and it all just kind of devolved into just random just stuff on the microphone and, yeah. and, and, then, you know, and then everyone saw everyone saw the next day everyone at Wacken saw uh, Alice Cooper and every single person I spoke to had exactly the same thought. Like, I wish Matson was watching this. Yeah. And this is how you put on a show like that. Mm. And I wish, you know, he'd be a little bit ashamed about, you know, how his shows went. Yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it earlier, really, when you say that our expectations are so low now. I think everyone generally agrees that around the 2009 cycle was when he was at his worst live, when he did that infamous download performance that was just awful. And yeah. the last few times I've seen him, I mean, we saw him at Wembley on the Heaven Upside Down tour near the end of last year, and it was it was solid for the most part. The second half was really fucking good. Um, I must not swear, I need a swear jar or something. Sorry, <laughs> how rude and unimaginative of me. Little clink. It was scrumbunctious. No, it was really really good. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I like the whole set on that tour. I know you, you did, fan, but yeah, from beginning did. to end, top to bottom, I was all in. Yeah, me and Luke um, actually walked into the crowd to find you belting along. So it might have been tattooed in reverse, actually, uh, all of the new stuff. So yeah, fair play. But anyway, it's always fun to see like genuine, genuine legends of the game working together. So we'll see if it goes anywhere beyond this. Um, Lamb of God are doing something, but we don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, there's a clip online of Randy walking down a corridor and he walks into a room and says 6A on the door and that is it and it, but it says something about Burn the Priest it as does, well which is tomorrow's Lama God's original today's name today's date Friday's date Friday's date that's the date Friday's date Friday's date going out Thursday <laughs> <laughs> so yeah tomorrow there'll be something big coming in Lamb of God's world uh, and uh, yeah you might want to keep an eye on that and on um, some other stuff coming up in Metal Hammer's world when it comes to that as well. So very, very exciting times. Also, I'm going to make Jonathan say this because you <laughs> told us something just before we went on air. Okay. Well, I've got other stories, but, but um, Nine Inch Nails have announced a show at the Royal Albert Hall um, after the Meltdown show. Yeah, so two Nine Inch Nails London shows, one on South Bank in the, do you know what? building that Royal is? Royal Festival Hall. The Royal Festival Hall and then yeah following it up with a show at the Royal Albert Hall which I presume will be 
pretty spectacular really I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine what Trent will have planned for that no I mean it's such a special venue when people play there they know they're going to have to bring something special because that venue has so much history and it's such an interesting setting and historical setting that you don't usually just get a normal gig there you get a performance yeah exactly absolutely yeah it's going to be uh, fascinating to see what he does and sorry I didn't really expect an example of it but Jonathan just uh, uh, revealed that he wasn't actually a big 90 Snails fan which uh, did surprise me actually and I'm not sure we can be friends anymore well I'll tell you you what but first let me say that I did actually uh, must have been late 90s spend a week driving around Europe watching them play in in a van so okay for like, someone that that's doesn't well, like yeah, me. Yeah, what happened? I had a friend who was, he had this kind of squat and his squat mate was um, in a band called Pig, an industrial band called Pig, who was supporting them. So I think, I, I think I, I'd just gotten back from some other trip from my old magazine and I got a phone call saying, like, do you want to get in a van, drive around Europe for a few days, see Nine Chanel's? I was like, yeah, when? Uh, you need to leave in about dream. half an hour. <laughs> so basically drove around. Space is so unimpressed yeah. right now. <laughs> basically got, no, I enjoyed the gigs. I mean, got in a van, drove around um, like Paris, Germany, uh, Luxembourg, uh, watching... Um, Did you say Luxembourg like Yes, that? I said Luxembourg. <laughs> Didn't I just, it's like a tiny little country. <laughs> With really deep vocal people? Or? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't. I can't. But you know, because I can't even remember if they played Luxembourg. I just remember like one of the places we drove through. So it's an amazing journey, trip. And yes, got to see them play about three times throughout that week. But things like I grew up sort of in like you know in the in like nine, late nineties when there was um, there was loads of amazing industrial music. It was like for me, it was like Front Two Four Two and Skinny Puppy, and um, and that music was really it was kind of really intense and. And Nine Inch Nails were kind of the next generation on, and I felt I didn't kind of need them in the same way that I, um, because I'd, I kind of had my fill of these other bands. Like, the, you know, there was this whole kind of original electronic body music scene was huge in the late nineties, and I was obsessed with it. And um, hmm. and there were so many like stupendously original bands, and uh, but also you know they talked about kind of global things, and Nine Inch Nails were more about kind of like, like a bit more personal. And I always liked bands that were more about your kind of existential plight rather than like personal diary kind of things. And so I kind of felt that Nine Inch Nails were a little bit less ambitious in some ways than um, wow. the bands like Front 242 or, or Skinny Puppy or bands of that ilk. Wow. Yeah. Rarely heard Trent Reznor described as unambitious, I know. I've got yeah. to say. I know. The award-winning Trent Reznor. As he shall always now be introduced. I think that's really interesting. And I can see that they're really valid points because I came into Nine Nails not having any of that background. And I heard bands like Skinny Puppy afterwards. And to me, it was just a less good version of what I enjoyed about Nine Inch Nails because I had experienced things the other way around. And... I guess just to address the ambitious point, he was like a guy who helped out in a studio who entirely built his own project, um, and that's pretty admirable, and he's gone on to then build his career up and up and up, going from being this kind of self-destructive, one-man band type of guy to scoring major films and collaborating with people and opening his music up to the rest of the world. So, well... Yeah, I mean, I've got nothing to say to these. I think I, both. I, mean, I, mean, I, sit, I sit in the middle of Nine Inch Nails, so you can just. How do you sit in the middle, though? Well, I th- okay, I think they are a brilliant seminal 
ambitious. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I, I mean, I think but, I've probably been ambitious in, in one very specific way. Um, yeah, it probably wasn't the best choice of words. That's fine. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't need to sit here and say Nine Inch Nails are good, but they never, they were, they were never my band. Like certain other bands yeah. were I mean if we want anything even loosely in that realm I'll follow myself for Marilyn Manson as an artist but I won't probably go to bat quite so hard for Trent just because he's not my guy because I mean in the, like, the 80s and the 90s uh, actually like fun to do that probably in the, in the late 80s actually industrial was something very different and it came from kind of very different roots it came from like uh, you know bands like uh, Throbbing Gristle, who were really, really avant-garde, and originally when industrial music was, was the term was coined, it was actually ambient music. That's really fucking weird because I know. Things that the first time I heard Throbbing Gristle, I was like, "Where did this come from? What depraved mind thought this up? How am I supposed to actually listen to it for more than ten seconds? I want to die." That was yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I, I can't listen to much Throbbing Gristle either. But there were there were other bands around that time like SPK who were really good. But it's just that you know there's a long history of industrial music that, um, and I just think when bands like. Nine Inch come. I'm sure they listened to those original bands, but um, it felt like a bit of a year zero. Is that a pun? No pun intended. Well, fair enough. Uh, one thing that was quite interesting about the Nine Inch Nails shows um, that Bitten announced is obviously they, they, uh, the South Bank show they're playing is a part of um, Robert Smith created uh, Meltdown Festival, which has got um, uh, Deftones are on it. Who else are on it? Placebo. Mogwai yeah Mogwai twist basically someone really rubbish as well that I can't remember they just went into my mind during my dreams and just pulled everything out of my brain yeah it is an absolute L fest uh, and I know I saw that um, well we all kind of talked about it in the office that Meltdown actually tweeted at one of the big kind of ticket reseller sites saying that their tickets weren't going to be uh, valid they Which did they, it was, they tweeted it via GoGo right, and they right, said right, it's right. against their terms and conditions to, t- to sell tickets above face value for profit or commercial gain. So because the, the South they... Bank Centre is... I'm not sure exactly what the funding structure is, but it's essentially a big arts complex that does a lot of work with communities and, um, you know, is, it has those principles where it has to adhere to certain standards. You know, it's not just a for-profit organisation, as far as I'm aware. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see if they can actually uh, put that into action. Is it? Are they going to be able to realistically block off any tickets that have been sold through a third-party site? Because this is a, I mean, this is a big problem for a lot of fans now. You kind of regularly see, uh, especially with the bigger shows, uh, the you know tickets go on sale at ten a.m. through official big league sites. They're up, they're all sold out by one minute past by two minutes past they're appearing on another third party site for like you know 300% plus inflated price um, so does it look like they're, they're um, Meltdown are actually going to be able to do anything about the people that have these tickets or not I don't really know if it's a I don't know I've not seen any follow up to that I'm not sure logistically how it works it's something that we will probably investigate down the line you know we've looked at in the magazine before about how ticketing companies work and what action is being taken to make sure reselling is fair and this really just feeds into that ongoing debate um, I'm not sure exactly how the South Bank Centre will address this but I'm really interested to find out Interesting 
So I'm sure it's like you know it's, it's not even a level playing field because I'm you know in the same way that you get um, I'm sure like you know they're being bought by bots. I'm sure there's like you know there are certain um, technologies that the ticket buyers use to just get in there really quick. Mm. That I can't speak for any specific sites, obviously, but there you know there have been investigations into this already by uh, the Department of Culture, Media and Sports and places like the BBC and some businesses have access to the back end of the websites and they have special tools they can use in order to purchase tickets and then sell them on through their own businesses so there are practices like that that do happen yeah but it's like you know uh there are companies buying and selling shares in like you know microseconds um you know when it's all kind of computerized mm-hmm. and anecdotal advice as well suggests that this does happen super quickly like you said you know people logging in to try and get a ticket or sitting in a big queue and miss out on tickets and then a few seconds later they go on a resale website yeah. and they see tickets on there so there's a lot of talk at the moment about how and why that is happening because you can literally see it happening when you're trying to buy tickets yourself yeah it's really it's really odd I think um, as El said it's something we've covered in Matt Hummer before but it was probably the better part of a couple of years ago that we last uh, took a real investigative look at it so um, we're going to kind of look further into this and and reach out to some of those ticketing companies for an answer on what's going on there and and how that whole process goes around because we appreciate that there's a lot of very unhappy fans in the seat at the moment about this kind of stuff coming up again and again so stay tuned and we'll be uh, we'll be back with some answers on that very very soon i think the last update was in november from the government that they're continuing their investigations that they're going to go and talk to these companies so i think we just kind of have to watch and see what the results are going to be from that mm-hmm Cool. All right. Well, we will do that. So stay tuned. We'll have some. Uh, we'll try and get some answers. But if not, we'll definitely look into it a little bit for everybody. Uh, what have the wonderful readers of the Metal Hammer Facebook group been asking us this month, everybody? Well, related to the discussion we just had. Oh yeah, that was timely. <laughs> ben Wilmot says, "What are your top three Nine Nails albums?" I think you're gonna have to take this L. Can we get some love for Year Zero in there? Would Year Zero make your top three? I like Year Zero. I should have thought about this earlier. I don't know. I feel under pressure now to deliver my definitive three albums. I'm a big... I mean, far as less covered ones go, I'm a big fan of With Teeth as well. I think that album's great. It's very danceable, that album, when it came out. It was yeah, sort of quite unexpected. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big... A bit of a dance nerd on the side, so that, that, that I like struck Steve. a chord with me. I like what he did with um, the, the soundtrack for uh, Natural Born Killers. Mm. That, you know, that was kind of... It was experimental, but... He, the, the bands he chose for it were really well thought out by people like Jim Galas, I remember being on that and it was kind of like a weird sort of tape mix mm. yeah absolutely I like him when that kind of stuff happens yeah and I, I like the fact that he, you know, he's kind of branched out into kind of more ambient territories as well yeah yeah definitely I'm a big fan of his stuff in that realm right Al what are you saying oh I just can't decide well, is Damon Spiral your number one or is well, that, that predictable no that's too obvious I think Damon Spiral is my number one and then maybe Pussy Hate Machine. And yeah. then maybe... Um, then maybe... Feeling quite standard, you need a wild card. <laughs> Probably Year Zero. There you go. Um, I don't know, it's really hard, because I think Year Zero isn't necessarily the best choice for a third album, but I really liked the campaign and the concept behind it, and the way he tried to make it bigger than an album, and the way he was going to sort of set up a TV show for it, and the teaser campaign for it. But in terms of wild cards, I'd probably say I really am a big fan of the live album and all that could have been. 
I actually asked for that from my parents um, for an Easter present because at some point in our lives... Hold on. Hold on. Easter present? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't but get presents for Easter. At some point in my life, for some reason, my parents decided that, you know, they could buy us an Easter egg or they could buy us a present for Easter. And so... Well, how much were the Easter eggs you were getting? <laughs> 15 quid? <laughs> I don't know. It was just one of these weird things where they sort of kind of went, yeah, you know, would you like a present for Easter? And I was like, yeah, I'd kind of like That's Tonight's amazing. Nails Live album, which is not Eastery whatsoever. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nothing Christian I can't believe you got it. the choice at Easter to choose between a bit of chocolate or a live album. <laughs> well, I didn't really get a choice. It was more just kind of, I really wanted and all it could have been. Um, my dad kind of said, yeah, we'll buy it for you for an Easter present. And I remember just being really excited getting it because it came in that like grey slipcase and just looked really mega cool. Yeah. And it was, it's my favourite live album. It's so exciting. You just feel like you're there. And I just used to listen to it over and over again. So I feel like that should be in my top three somewhere actually, even though it's not a studio album. So maybe wow. Downward Spiral and all that could have been scooping up quite a few songs on that record. Yep. And then maybe... Pretty home machine. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's a long answer. There, Sorry. If any of my family are listening and are thinking of getting me a chocolate egg for Easter, I'll, I'll have a vinyl instead. So it'll be nice. There's a nice Lord of the Rings box that I quite fancy. So I'll take that instead of an Easter egg because that's a fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andrew Cleary says, do you think deluxe albums are a con to squeeze more money out of fans for an extra few songs that could have made the album anyway? Or do you like the idea of them? I've noticed they, they're doing them less. Like, I remember a few years ago, you get, like, an album, and then, like, you know, it'll come out on CD. And then um, six months down the line, or three months down the line, you get the deluxe version with, like, four um, extra tracks. The Roadrunner Digipacks. Yeah. yeah. And, and though, Iconic. And, yeah, and those seemed um, a bit of a con. And, you know, I think people, it, both people wise up to them. I think when people started buying music online a lot more, listen to Spotify or Apple Music, that became a bit redundant because there weren't there weren't um, artifacts. And I think now you know a lot more bands are doing things like box sets, mm. which um, which I love. I love having a proper box set and um, yeah, me too. And I don't feel, feel you know that's that's like a you know, it's part of my emotional investment in a band mm. um, and. Um, so, so they're very different so you're getting much fewer of those now yeah those kind of deluxe versions that um, kind of hit you like four months later well, I used to hate that like you when I was buying CDs and then I would buy it and then a few months later it would be like oh now I need to get this and get the extra tracks but I really like it now when on Spotify you're listening to a record and extra tracks just come on. That, that happens annoys to me. the piss out of me sometimes. Oh, I like it. I think it happens to me the last Corn record. I was At one point I was listening to it and there were extra tracks and I was like, there's new Corn songs. And for some reason I just not noticed. It annoys me when the, their bonus tracks that are stuck in weird orders or the only version they've got of a certain album is this weird massive deluxe yeah. thing. But I mean, the way people are listening to music has changed now anyway. And actually, a lot of bands sell albums online through iTunes which I think is changing anyway now isn't it but um, things like that people do do it uh, people do create albums in a way that they sell tracks over a kind of completed piece and it does give fans the opportunity to you know buy select tracks or just stream select tracks or whatever yeah, I, from I kinda, that point of view I kind of hate that idea 
Yeah, it's a yeah. I mean, it, but, I'm an know, albums hit, person still. I'm so am I, but old fashioned albums person. And, I, and I, th- I think to be fair, most metal fans in general are probably more likely to be album yeah, oriented than but I like other when, fans. I like it when albums are conceived as albums. I mean, like you, like you couldn't put like let's say a Nick Cave album and have like one track out of context of any particular album, or have it mixed in with one other album because mm. they're so unique to the atmosphere and the spirit of that particular album. And I think. You know, all our favourite bands, you know, the albums could only be made at that particular time and they're self-contained things. And, I, you know, if people start thinking just in terms of, like, single tracks, you lose that, you know, it might just go through purely for the immediacy side of things and you lose that sense of either the photographication or how you put space in an album. You lose that sense of dynamics mm-hmm. and everything becomes much more kind of, might be, you know, more snappy, but... It's not going to remain in time, no. as um, as you know, as as a body of work. Yeah, I, th- I think also as well, it's probably worth pointing out that depending on which artists and bands you're talking about, I mean, to me, the idea of squeezing money out of fans is a bit redundant in an era where the mass majority of bands don't make money out of music. Mm. You know, like if a band, especially a metal band, I mean, the amount of metal bands that can make legitimate, actual, livable money out of their their music itself is tiny. And I think at the end of the day, if a band feels that they can earn a little bit extra here or there by putting out some deluxe records of people, but, I think in this day and age, that's not... not no, but, is it, is it the, but who's making the money? Is it them or is it the label? A very good point. You know, it depends, but, depends on the band. Yeah, and uh, it depends on the deal as well, because you know a lot of um, yeah, exactly. people were signing these things called 360 deals where the labels had... A certain cut of the uh, merchandising as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of the time you get, you know, how many times have we seen spurious kind of greatest hits sets get put out mid-cycle because mm. a band's got a deal with a label that they need to release something yeah. else on and all that kind yeah. of shit. But this, but this is, um, this also ties into the idea of the albums as well too with merchandising. It's like the ones that seem to like sell the most merchandise and do really well out of it are the bands that kind of created their own entire world. Like once you step in. You know, you're in that world and no one else's. So you know, like Eamon Ra and Batushka are like merchandising monsters. Like mm-hmm. you know, and it makes sense that um, you know you kind of want a piece of that particular universe that you feel you know a part a part of. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something for all bands to think about as well too. Is just yeah, create your own universe and you'll sell more shit because of it as well too. Excellent. <laughs> Advice from a <laughs> reviews sense. editor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, but you know, it, it's, it's the level of attachment people have to things that um, make them buy loads of stuff. Of course. Um, do you want to take this next question, Sams? Uh, yeah, so um, on the back of the Shine Down and Godsmack US Co headline tour being announced this week, what's the single worst gig slash tour you've ever <laughs> had to review for work or been dragged along to for whatever reason? Who asked that? Uh, that was from Elliot Holt. Well, Elliot clearly does not like Shine Down or Godsmack. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I can't say I blame him. Um, I, actually, on that note, it, I don't know if um, a lot of uh, English fans are aware of just how big some of those bands are in the US, but I went to uh, Chicago Open Air last year and um, I saw the, the, the crowds that both Shine Down and Godsmack had, and fuck me, they love that stuff out there. It was wild. They literally fill arenas. Yeah, it's everywhere. all that honking earnestness 
Earnestness. <laughs> American Honking syndrome. earnestness. Um, so worst gigs then? Yeah, so uh, I, I, the first thing that came into my head because I was there in a work capacity was uh, there was a band around about probably five years ago now called Broken Side. Do you remember mm, them? I do. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember what that whole Crunk. scene was called. Crunk, that was it. Crunk <laughs> core. Bunch of white guys with awful haircuts, kind of rapping. I'm wearing one of the Jaws t-shirts, so I don't have a problem with hip-hop or rap music when it's done well, but uh, yeah, a bunch of really gawky little kids rapping over these shitty kind of post-Skrillex mixed with metal bullshit. And uh, yeah, it was just, I think uh, they played, I want to say the Barfly, and I think half their band didn't turn up, so it was just two dudes and a fucking backing track in front of like five people going and it was it was diabolically bad and thankfully that band have not been heard from since on any meaningful level Funny enough the worst band I've seen live in recent years there was a similar uh, band called Kate Moss Um, oh that was recently wasn't it yeah Kate Moss with the dollar signs with the dollar signs yeah and um, it's how modern just yeah when when people want to rap and they can't rap it's the most painful thing in the world. It's like seeing a comedian die on stage. <laughs> it's, um, and they had this whole kind of concept that would seem to have a whole concept, but it was just the most sh- shoddy, uh, desperate thing I've ever seen in my entire life. They had this uh, other singer struck dancer who kind of stripped down to her thongs. And it's not even in any way titillating. It's just like... Uh, just the, the, just, you, could, you, just you could smell the desperation coming off of it and... It's such. It seems such a like a New York thing, and it probably makes sense within two blocks of New York and no house outside of it. And um, they just got booed completely. And um, and horror came on and said like, "Man, I'm t- I'm totally into this shit. This is art." And it, but the, the difference in quality between horror and them was so incredibly yeah, vast. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so they, you know they kind of undercut any kind of sympathy you might have had for this band. And Absolutely. I think one of the first zeros out of ten I've ever given <laughs> richly deserved yeah shout out horror as <laughs> every well, single right? every single of that zero is richly deserved <laughs> uh, yeah massive massive uh, props to horror as well by the way yeah, yeah mentioned amazing headline, line, man. Yeah. And, and you know brilliant pro- band proper punk spirit yeah exactly L worst thing you've ever seen <laughs> on a stage well I started writing about gigs when I lived in Sheffield and I wrote for this local magazine called Sandman and every few weeks they would send around an email of bands they wanted covering and you could just reply uh, with the ones that you were into and then they would send you off to go and review these gigs. So one day I got this email and I didn't recognise any of the bands on the list so I just picked one of them and thought I'm just going to go along and review whatever this is. And it was at a local pub called The Grapes and it had a tiny upstairs room where you could just go and watch bands and it was a really weird one because sometimes you get people just going for bands and sometimes you just get the clientele of the pub. It was mostly old beer-drinking men that were just going upstairs for something to do. Of course. So I just turned up one night, went upstairs for this gig, didn't know what I was getting into, and it just turned out to be like three blokes on a stage with three chairs. And it turned out to be this really weird performance art where they would just walk around the stage and like scrape these chairs along the floor and make moaning noises. And they did it for about 15 minutes. And then after that, they got like uh, dolls and then they just started blowing into the bums of these dolls. 
and making noises. Okay. And I just did not know what, what to make called? of it. I don't, I don't remember. Oh. It was years ago. I was going to go look them up. <laughs> I'll have to find out and let you know. But it was just really surreal. I just didn't realise what I was going to. And there were only about five people watching and no one knew what to make of it. Wow. It was super weird. Well, if you're listening and you just happen to be one of the dull, bumhole blowing people in that band, get in touch so we can block you and never think of you again. <laughs> Uh, how how utterly utterly bizarre um, what else are the lovely people of the Metal Hammers readers group on Facebook which you can go and join right now asking us so um, Alec says make a band consisting solely of Discworld characters oh that's so niche <laughs> what a nerd yeah my man um, I can do this uh, I'd have Death on bass I'd have Sam Vines no, I'd have Sam Vines on bass, Death on lead guitar, Mort on vocals, um, one of the Weird Sisters on drums, and the librarian on keyboards. I, <laughs> if I, you I, don't I, know what I'm talking about, go read Discworld because it's amazing. I'd have a drone doing bed consisting solely of the turtles. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, cool. Shout out, Alec, for the, what must be the geekiest question we've ever had, but I'm into it. Um, what is this just a random childless loser from TJ that's a username by the way says thinking about the faceless situation um, I think that's a, a, a kind of band members endlessly leaving and coming and going and all that kind of stuff uh, what memorable bands beside Megadeth have changed almost all their members but managed to make a lasting impression in the metal scene I mean, first and foremost, most bands go through significant lineup changes. Like any band that makes a big impression on a in metal has probably gone through a lot of changes over the years. There's a few exceptions. Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes there's when everyone suddenly leaves on mass like Sabaton. Oh yeah, yeah. that happened. Didn't yeah, it? and I mean they seem to do quite well out of it because I guess it was so much based around um, uh, Dragon. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I think as long as you've got his his voice on there, and you know someone that can write a galloping heavy metal song about war then Sabaton are always going to be alright yeah um, I mean maybe the most notable example of this happening recently is Ghost of course where the ghouls all pissed <laughs> off <laughs> um, and the, the, there's kind of a bit of a public fallout and there's some lawsuit going on and all that and actually I think Ghost is the best example for this to me as long as you've got the main creator and visionary of the band still there then the, bat, the, the heart and soul of the band is still intact and that remains to be seen with Ghost of course because we'll see what this next album brings but yeah I think I think they're a good example of a band that have done great things so we'll, we'll see what happens when this next album will come yeah I mean there are some bands that you just can't imagine them losing a member because um, you know there's band like such a gang whether it's like something like Neurosis or Watain or something or mm-hmm. you know there's bands like it's so much about the one between the people in the band mm-hmm um, I'm trying to think of any other bands that have lost so many memories all so well many Sepultura have still forged out a formidable yeah. career after Max and then Igor left you know. mm. they're still going strong they played I think the Forum maybe the other day yeah I mean there are, I mean, things, there are bands who kind of go off and do different like they have a big split and they go off and do different things and it goes yeah I like this bit I like this bit but if you put them two together you get something that's kind of more than some of its parts mm. like my you know my favourite album of, my favourite metal album of the, of the first decade was a band called The Guru Bunja and a band called Om and it's one of the most beautiful records I've ever heard in my entire life like a black metal record they kind of had the two main guys had a falling out one continued Nigeru Bunja, the other um, who passed away, Sadik uh, Negru, and the other uh, con- 
started a band called uh, Door to Do. And they were great. They're both really good, but just like not as good as the band together. Like they mm. both siphoned off one aspect of the original band. Yeah, of course. But having like these, these aspects together, it creates something that's you know you can't you can't get it with any other kind of configuration of members or what have you. Fair enough. And you swing to my view, Oh, I think you cover the main ones. I think you made a really good point about the visionary being there because I think when you do see bands losing singers that's really hard to deal with and you get a lot of kickback from fans and depending on how involved they were with the writing process bands can still survive that but sometimes it's really difficult to get over that hump Mm. of identifying with a different voice Mm -hmm. yeah I I think so I mean if you look at someone like Marilyn Manson what became a very stable lineup that changed a little bit in the 90s kind of became a revolving door of characters really and in his case that's come to mostly diminishing returns I mean I mm. think the days where it was Manson John Five Twiggy Gingerfish N.W. Gacy like that was a real powerhouse lineup of musicians and then mm. he kind of brought in Tim Skold for a bit when they did Golden Age Grotesque which I think is a brilliant album um, and then since then it's all gone a bit odd so I think it just honestly depends on whose vision yeah like I said whose vision it is who's kind of steering the the bus for everybody and how influenced they are to start with by everyone else around them. Yeah. I mean, do you remember Amen? I'm sure every yeah. time Case of Chaos came back, it was with a band, with a, with a completely new band. Yeah, yeah, of course. But again, he was such a driving force and some bands, you never really know unless you really delve into it who the other musicians are. You literally know mm. who the singer is and that's it and everyone else just blends into the crowd. Whereas, like you said, with Manson, when you've got people with personalities and identities, it is much harder than to break from those mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting though it's like with some bands like you know the, if you can if you can lose all the members it's clearly one thing you obviously don't have is like say a signature guitar sound like you know can you imagine like Enslaved without um, Icedale's guitar riffs mm-hmm. and um, so it's, if you can if you can lose all those members it, it suggests you're lacking something that's it's a good point to that band mm, it's a really it's good, good point, point. Yeah. you know like you know so many of the great bands it's it's uh, it's between the singer and some unique guitarist or who has a particular like you know can you imagine um, uh, Jay's Addiction without Dave Navarro it just you can't it just not mm. you just can't do it very very true or, or Guns N' Roses without Slash whoops <laughs> <laughs> well we don't have to worry about that anymore thank god yeah. and Charlie Democracy was a great album I don't care what people say I actually, I actually, <laughs> like, I actually like a th- at least a third of it it's yeah. much better than I, I thought it was going to be it is it is all right that is all for episode seven of the Met hammer podcast thank you very much for listening in and supporting us as always don't forget the aforementioned magazine is out right now go pick that motherfucker up i saw again jesus no, don't do it. <laughs> stop it merlin i know but i just uh, you know god i'm gonna do a swear count for next episode <laughs> i'm gonna not merlin. swear not swear next week Jeebus. Anyway, it's heavy metal, fuck it. Uh, don't forget the magazines out now, go pick that up. The Metal Hammer Tour featuring Trivium, Code Orange, Venom Prison and Power Trip is basically days away. Uh, three of those bands are already ripping up across Europe as we speak and all four will hit the UK in April. It's going to be brilliant. Get on there and get your tickets while you can. I think it was above 80% sold across the UK when we checked last. Very, very good. 
On next week's show, we will be not only unveiling the brand new issue of Metal Hammer, it's a doozy, believe me, we will also be announcing in a world exclusive all the nominees for this year's Golden Gods. It is back, it is bigger than ever, and it's going to be fucking epic. We will see you then. Ta everybody. Bye. Bye.